Good afternoon. It is my great pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Mr. Michael Anton. Mr. Anton is a lecturer in politics and research fellow at Hillsdale College's Kirby Center in Washington, D.C. He also is a senior fellow at the Claremont Institute and a former Trump administration official, serving as the deputy assistant to the president for strategic communications from February 8, 2017 to April 8, 2018. Before that time, he had worked as a speechwriter for Rudy Giuliani and also for George W. Bush's National Security Council. Mr. Anton rose to national prominence for his essay, The Flight 93 Election, in which he encourages conservatives to support then-candidate Trump. He then followed up this essay with the book, After the Flight 93 Election, The Vote That Saved America and What We Still Have to Lose, we expounds on his previous essay and emphasizes the need to defend the American and Western tradition. He also is the author of a book about men's fashion titled The Suit, a Machiavellian Approach to Men's Style, and is a trained French chef. Without further ado, Mr. Michael Anton. You laugh, but that book still makes money. <laughs> around eighty to a hundred dollars every six months, and it's been out for thirteen years. You, you too can be uh, a famous author. Um, so I think I'm here fundamentally for two reasons. One is because I was Phil Munoz's roommate in graduate school. Um, we went to the same graduate school. He actually finished, which is why he's on the faculty of Notre Dame. And you can call him Doctor. I did not finish, so you cannot call me Doctor. Uh, although people do, and I sometimes don't correct them, and then I feel guilty because I feel like I'm misleading them. Um, I went off into politics and then came back to this life. So the second reason I'm famous to the extent that I'm famous, or that I'm here, is because I'm famous for having written this one article, which did not exactly elevate me to national prominence immediately because nobody knew who it was, or at least most people didn't. It did, however, elevate the name of the Roman general that I chose as my pseudonym to national prominence briefly. Everyone was getting uh, going to Google and looking up, who is Decius? Who is this guy? He's not like Caesar. Everybody knows who Caesar is. Who's Decius? Well, he was a general who, um, in the early Roman Republic, uh, if you know anything about Roman history, uh, uh, they, they replaced the kings right after they expelled the kings, a famous act, with consuls. They would elect annually two consuls. The reason they elected two is because they never wanted a single person to be in charge again. They thought that leads to tyranny, so we're going to have, always have two. Uh, has a, a, its own, carries its own set of problems, in particular violates the principle of the unity of command. So the consuls would take the field as generals, and you'd have two people in charge of, a, of an army at the same time, and it could lead to problems. In any event, the, before a battle, um, Decius and this other consul, Manlius Torquatus, they take the uh, auguries. What is an augury? It's a Roman religious ritual. It sounds really idiotic, but this is a long time ago. People have learned something since. Basically, you kill a chicken, you cut it open, you spread its guts on the ground, and you look at the guts, and the guts tell you what, either what's going to happen or what you're supposed to do. So that's what they did. And they took the auguries, and the soothsayer, looking at the chicken guts, says, um, well, I have good news and bad news for you fellas. Well, OK, lay it on us. And well, the good news is um, that well, one side will win the battle, and the other side will lose a general. And I don't know how this is going to go. This is the night before the battle. So they get into the battle, and they're fighting. And uh, everything is going well on Manlius Torquatus's wing over here. Things are not going so great on Decius's wing over here. And he decides that, I guess I have to fulfill the augury. And he dismounts, says a devotional prayer to the gods, and uh, rallies his wing, the left wing, which rallies. And they end up defeating the Latins. They win the battle, a battle that, incidentally, Machiavelli describes in Book 2, Chapter 16 of the Discourses as 
the most important battle the Romans ever fought in any war in their history. They win, but he dies in the process, so the augury is fulfilled. So I used that as my name. Why did I use that as my name? Well, because I knew I was going to make a lot of people really, really mad. And I didn't think any of them would kill me, and none of them have yet. Um, but I thought I would lose a lot of friends, which I did. Um, I thought I might get fired, which I didn't, but I was touch and go for a while. Um, and I didn't know kind of what would come next for me after that. It turns out I landed okay, but uh, it was a risk. So I wrote this piece, the Flight 93 election, and it had a number of points. You know, it was a pro-Trump piece. I acknowledged his flaws and faults and so on. It was basically a pro-Trump piece, but fundamentally it was an anti-conservative piece. So my take was coming from, I'm looking at this syllabus, and as I said, we had the same education. So I recognize everything on here, read all of it in grad school, and many of my own teachers' works are on here. You had our principal teacher come talk to you, Charles Kessler is the guy who supervised the PhD that Dr. Munoz here completed and the one that I did not complete. He was also the publisher, somewhat reluctantly, of the Flight 93 election, Charles was. So you had him, you read a lot of Harry Jaffa, who's another one of our teachers. So we learned basic conservatism, or what conservatism is supposed to be. And I started to drift from it because of what I thought were its shortcomings or mistakes. But I drifted in a soft way, and I wasn't involved in this life day to day. I had been in politics for a while, got out of politics, went into corporate life, just kind of making a living, and writing on the side for the fun of it, either academic journals, scholarly stuff, or more popular, you know, nothing massively popular, but you know, things that like conservative journals would publish that 20,000 people would read. But all, all 20,000 of them being conservative intellectuals, so it had some minor influence. Um, I got to a point where I started to think that you know, conservatism had fundamentally lost its way. And um, long story short, I wrote a bunch of things before the Flight 93 election, but that's the thing that really took off. And it was, as I say, it was fundamentally an anti-conservative piece. It was saying that Trump, despite his deviations from conservatism, because remember, while Trump right now, and for the last three years, two and a half years, probably what most of you heard is this is the most dangerous right-wing nutter psychopath that's ever won a major American election, right? That's not what people, the conservatives, were saying about Trump in the fall of 2015 through the primary season of 2016. National Review, the Weekly Standard, AEI, the Heritage Foundation, most of the main organs, the citadels of official conservatism, were saying pretty much the opposite about Trump. They were criticizing him for being insufficiently conservative. He doesn't check this box or this box or this box or this box. Um, they got on him pretty hard, for instance, uh, in the fall of 2015, because he went to Iowa, obviously wanting to win the Iowa caucuses. He said, yeah, I'm okay with ethanol, no big deal, right? Because if you, you really, hard to go to Iowa and be against ethanol and win the Iowa caucuses. No one's managed to do it yet. Uh, we'll see if that ever happens. But conservatives, to the conservatives, it's, a, it's an ideological purity thing. Ethanol is a subsidy, it's anti-market, it's anti-efficiency, and if you go to Iowa and pledge you're for ethanol, you're just pandering and you're bad. This is just one of many examples where they went down the line and said, you know, um, Trump is insufficiently conservative. So I don't know how many of you read these magazines, but if you remember in December of 2015, National Review published an infamous issue. It had only two words on the, well, aside from the masthead, only two words on the cover of the magazine. Just, it said, against Trump. And then they had a symposium of people writing in there talking about why they were against Trump. Um, all of which focused on ways in which Trump was insufficiently conservative according to the checklist definition of conservatism that kind of emerged out of the mid to late 70s 
ossified during the Reagan era and had held pretty much unchanged through the so-called Gingrich Revolution uh, of uh, 1994 when the Republicans took over the House for the first time in 40 years and had held firm. So Trump is breaking with it in a lot of ways. Um, he, I would say he broke with it fundamentally in two ways and implicitly in one way, right? I'll explain what I mean by implicitly in a second. So one of the fundamental ways, uh, fundamentally I mean in that he, he broke not only with what it was doing but with, what, uh, with how it understood itself and what it was saying about itself. So for instance, conservatism had been officially for several decades, many decades, a free trade, both the Republican Party was the free trade party, conservatism was the free trade ideology. Now this kind of makes sense because in traditional understanding of things, the Republicans are the Chamber of Commerce Party, they're the business party, and so on, and the Republicans are the little guy, or were, not so much anymore, the little guy party, the labor party. Remember, it used to be um, private sector unions were totally allied with the Democrats. The Democrats actually used to run candidates who, uh, guys like Dick Gephardt, nobody remembers, uh, used, was the number, very senior member of the House of Representatives, maybe could have been speaker had he hung on longer, ran for president on a trade restrictionist, pro-union, pro-labor uh, platform in 2004, and he, and he was kind of the last prominent Democrat to run along that, on that kind of a platform. Meanwhile, the Republicans had kind of nobody making this argument for a long time, and it was considered un-Republican, unconservative, and just kind of heretical to be anything but totally for free trade. So for instance, the, the, this fault line, I think, first became evident to some of us over the NAFTA debate. You all know what NAFTA is because it's been in the news a lot lately, right? And Trump is trying, he actually has renegotiated it. And the package is in Congress sitting there, but nope, they haven't voted on it, probably haven't even read it. Um, well, when did NAFTA come about? So NAFTA is something, this is, stands for the North American Free Trade Agreement, meaning a relaxation of trade barriers between the United States, Canada, and Mexico. Anytime you hear the phrase free trade agreement, it never is, because a free trade agreement that just eliminates all trade would take a whole sentence. There won't be any trade barriers anymore. That's it. I don't even need a full page to do that. A real free trade agreement, when you see them in Washington, they're as thick as 10 phone books because they have all kinds of exceptions and various protections. But the idea is if at the end of the day you achieve net liberalization, so if your 2,000-page free trade agreement makes the trading arrangement freer than it was before, they call it a free trade agreement. So the Bush administration, 41, the first Bush administration, spends its entire four years negotiating this, and they finish the negotiation, but he's defeated before he can get it through Congress in the 1992 election. Um, and the, the, the prospects for this treaty are now very uncertain because it's thought that, okay, the Democrats are back in power, and the Democrats are traditionally the party of labor and protectionism and tariffs and so on. And so maybe they'll kill this. They'll sink it. So, so this is, we don't know what's going to happen here. And Clinton, who obviously was the one who was elected president in 92, had not given a very clear picture of where he stood on the trade issue. On the one hand, he was a new Democrat. He was breaking from a lot of Democratic orthodoxy. On the other hand, he, he, he fuzzed up his trade position, I think in part to maintain his flexibility. But there was some thought or hope, depending on your perspective, that NAFTA would go away. And the first several months of the administration, it wasn't clear what he was going to do. But after a while, Clinton was persuaded by people in his cabinet and by business interests aligned with the Democratic Party that it was better to pass NAFTA. And this begins the transition for the Democrats away from their roots toward a more free trade posture. So NAFTA's passed, um, even in an overwhelmingly Democratic Congress, but Clinton has to rely on a lot of Republican votes to get it passed. This is the beginning of a kind of realignment on the, on the trade issue. As I said, Gephardt 
you know, who was the number two in the House at that point, um, tries to lead an opposition to this and fails. Okay. Fast forward a long way, you basically haven't heard any Republican trade skeptical, vo skeptical voice for a couple of decades by the time 2015 rolls around. In fact, in a way, what NAFTA was to Bill Clinton, China joining the WTO was to George W. Bush. So we used to have to vote every year, the Congress would have to vote every year on renewing um, what was called normal trade relations with China, right? Now this caused heartache in the business community because they would say, well, if I'm going to, I don't want to go build a factory in Shenzhen or whatever, no matter how economically beneficial it is to me right now, because if the Trade Relations Act doesn't get renewed in the following year, then I can't use the factory anymore. And what do I do? I got to close it. I got to sell it. Capital, I'm out the capital investment. I want certainty. And so Clinton spent a lot of his own political capital. He has now realigned the Democratic Party in a, in a pro-trade way, clearly by the, his second term. Spends a lot of his political capital negotiating permanent trade relations with China and Chinese accession to the WTO. But he can't get it done before, obviously, he's not defeated, but he's termed out, does not reelected. So he hands it off to the next president who happens to be from another party. Um, uh, still a very free trade party, but also a much more China, supposedly a much more China skeptical party. So there's a whole bunch of uncertainty. If Al Gore had won the 2000 election, some of you may say he did, but whether he did or didn't, he didn't become president. I'm agnostic on that point. I don't know how to count ballots in Florida. Um, uh, there's a, there was no, no question if Al Gore is president in January of 2001, China WTO accession is going to happen. They're going to join the WTO and they're going to reap all these benefits and the free trading regime will expand. Bush, not so clear. He had spent a lot of time on the campaign trail talking about China as a strategic competitor and attacking the Clinton administration for being too soft on China in this realm. But the same thing kind of happens. The business interests in his own party and others coalesce around Bush and they implore him in his first six months, look, you got to let this happen. It's important. It's important for business. Yes, there are downsides, but the downsides of not doing it outweigh it and so on. And he does it. China joins the WTO. Okay. At, th at this point, it seems like what, there's a phrase that um, people don't use so much anymore, but it was used a lot at the time. It was called the Washington Consensus. And it was specifically on trading issues, and the Washington consensus was a, both a domestic consensus that both parties had finally abandoned any notion of uh, uh, pro-domestic pro labor protectionism, but also that they were going to make contingent foreign aid and U.S. foreign policy to other countries, contingent on us pressuring those countries to adopt freer trade, right? So the Washington consensus was, oh, Peru or whoever, you want some loan guarantees for an infrastructure project? Okay, well, here's some, all these unfair trading practices that we don't like that we're going to ask you to drop or relax as a, as a quid pro quo. Oh, did I say that? Um, right. It's, it was thought at this point that that question had been forever settled in both parties. Now, what happened in the meantime, I would say, in the intervening 15 years, so we're talking 2001 to 2015, is China's WTO accession. I don't know how many of you are from, like, what I would call rural or red state or heartland or rust belt kinds of communities, but it hit these places really, really hard. Not necessarily rust belt too, but in the south, the western half of North Carolina was, you know, in particular hit really, really hard. Uh, cloth mills, and textile stuff, and um, furniture and other kinds of light manufacturing. All over, this is happening and the political class on the coast in both parties are not really noticing or paying attention. And God knows how a real estate developer who lived his entire life at 54th Street and 5th Avenue figured it out 
for our political and economic class, but he apparently did and runs on this issue. Although I gotta, I gotta give back up for a second and give Trump credit. I, I talked to some students earlier this morning about him. Um, I was a freshman in college in 1987 in California. Trump was nationally famous in California in 1987. Everybody in America already knew who Donald Trump was, even if they had never set foot in Manhattan in their entire life. In part because, yes, he's a brash guy and a self-promoter, and he liked to go on TV and spout off his opinions, and he, he was on the cover of Time, and he just enjoyed the attention. But people also enjoyed giving him attention. You know, He could get anywhere he wanted, into any newspaper, any TV show. And so people who say Trump bounces around from this or that thought or opinion or whatever, I think have kind of a point. Um, but I will also say he had one, one question, not the only one, but one question on which he has been remarkably consistent throughout his political life is he's been, he's been very protectionist. He used to be extremely critical, even though he said he was a Reagan supporter in, 80, in the 80s. He was always critical of Reagan for being too free trade, not looking out for American workers enough. Even though Reagan was, by our current standards, or by the standards that later dominated the Republican Party, Reagan was actually fairly protectionist in a number of ways. Trump comes along and he starts running on this issue, right? We're being ripped off. We're making bad deals. It's, you know, the outsourcing, the loss of jobs, and so on is, is killing communities. He's killing industries. Uh, and it resonates enormously. Right? I think that was one of the places where I, I diagnosed that conservatism had failed. Conservatism, think tank beltway conservatism had convinced itself that if the numbers were good, in particular aggregate GDP, productivity numbers, efficient allocation of capital, uh, unemployment, especially in the big productive sectors of the economy, if those were good, everything was okay and local effects mattered less. So they weren't paying attention to what was going on in specific states, specific counties, specific cities, and completely lost touch with a huge section of the population and the electorate. Conservatism did, and the party. Trump tapped into that. So that was, an, uh, that was an open break where he was running not just against what they were doing, but what they were saying. The second one was on foreign policy. So if trade split the Republican coalition, the Iraq war really hammered it apart in a big way. The 2003 Iraq war, not the 1991 Iraq war. Um, clearly, purely a war of choice, sold to the American people as a war of necessity. Uh, and I copped to my share of the blame for that, having been in the White House at the time. There's nothing I can do for uh, having supported it at the time, except to say that I learned my lesson and renounce it now and realize it was a mistake. And you know, if I should be drummed out of public life for that um, original mistake, to all I can say to my various critics, and there are lots of them, is go for it. Um, in any event, it split the party at the time, uh, but only it, it split it in a weird way where. There was a very small but committed number of opponents, but the vast majority of people in the, within the party and within conservatism do what people normally do in those circumstances, which is they rally around the leader, right? There's a crisis, whatever it is, you know, you rally around. As the manifest failure of the Iraq war became more and more evident, the predictions made about what it would do proved to be untrue. They were not borne out by what people in the Bush administration said. More and more people fell away to the point where they thought, all right, that was dumb. Uh, and we didn't get anything out of it, and we lost a lot of people, and we screwed up the region, and God knows what the casualty numbers are for Iraqis. I mean, we know the total number of American deaths, this is not counting wounds, lost limbs, and things like that, just American deaths from Iraq and Afghanistan alone since 9-11 is all, uh, just short of 7,000 people, right? And there's a big sector of the electorate that's got completely tired of that. 
Um, but the Republican Party and conservatism felt that it had no choice but to continue to defend it, that it was part of their record, and to run away from it would be, I don't know, cowardice or intellectually dishonest or something. I think also conservatism had convinced itself, I know this, and it's a big part of it still convinces itself that the conservative position is always the hawkish position, right? So, you know, if it's a choice between being muscular and strong and invading a country and blowing it up or not doing that, well, to not do it is weak, therefore we have to be strong. Um, now, that, there's an older conservative tradition which is kind of the opposite of that, which is you do as little as possible in as few areas as possible, uh, precisely so that you don't overstretch yourself and on bump up against the laws of unintended consequences. But that school was in abeyance during this period. And so you get to the 2008 election. I mean, there's a number of reasons why Barack Obama won the 2008 election and the Democratic nomination. The number one reason, in my opinion, why Barack Obama won the Democratic nomination in 2008, because he could credibly, plausibly say to the Democratic electorate, which was passionately against the Iraq war from the beginning, he could raise his hand and go, I'm the only guy here who spoke out against it before it happened, right? Hillary Clinton, she voted. Not only did she not speak out against it, she was in the Senate and voted for it, right? You go down the line on all of his opponents. Now, granted, he wasn't a national figure when he spoke out against it. He was an Illinois state senator, but he did speak out against it in 2002 before a vote was taken in the U.S. Senate and before a single troop was committed. And he could stand on that record, and that helped him enormously. Whereas you watch the Republicans in all of their debates in 2008 trying to take on Obama, everybody goes, except for Ron Paul, the father of the current Rand Paul, but they have the same basic foreign policy outlook. They're running as hard as they can to see how fast they can hug the Iraq war in 2003. And the guy who wins the nomination, John McCain, is the one who supported it the most. Um, same dynamic plays out in 2012, except this time Ron isn't in it, but Rand is in it, but he's representing the same faction of the party. He's the only one speaking out against it. And the lesson the Republicans and conservatism gets is, this doesn't play well, we ought to be for it, and you know, we have to be for the Iraq war specifically, and for you know, hawkishness generally. Trump stunned them all by running hard against it and not losing. Throughout the 2015-16 season, you would see once, twice, thrice a week a hopeful-sounding mainstream media headline, something like, he's done it now, it's finally over, he can't recover from that. Uh, it's happened all just over and over and over again. And, and, and one of the times that they really thought, oh, now he's done it, is he said, of all places, the South Carolina primary. Now, why, there's a debate before the primary. Why is that important? Because it's the most Republican state in the union, has the most conservative uh, Republican primary electorate in the country, and it's got a lot of military, active, and retired military people. So the thought was, like, you cannot go to South Carolina and criticize the Iraq war in a Republican primary debate and survive. But that's exactly what he did. And he not only did he survive, the numbers went up. And he just showed that that old paradigm of conservatism was over. It was wrong as a political matter. And he made a case. He actually, you know, he, he made a strong case for the older Republican tradition that I'm talking about. The sort of, I don't know, did you assign any uh, original Bob Taft? You know, the old Bob Taft, son of William Howard, president and Supreme Court justice. His son was a senator from Ohio for years, the leader of the Republican Party. And the sort of the, the real... If there's a single like intellectual center to that old Republican foreign policy, the, the more, I don't want to say isolationist, because he wasn't for total disengagement, but for relative restraint and non-engagement and care, care about how we committed ourselves, it was Bob Taft. So Trump's sort of hearkening back to that. He's making arguments kind of along those lines, culminating in a campaign speech, a very good campaign speech that he gave 
I can't remember if it was April or May, um, but before he had sewn up the nomination, but when it looked like he was going to get the nomination of 2016, gave a foreign policy speech outlining it. That was a very clean break from the Republican foreign policy of the last 20 years, certainly of the Republican policy since 9-11, right? All right, now the third issue in which I think conservatism had failed and where Trump exploited it was obviously his signature issue, which was immigration. And the way I, the, why I put it is that he um, sort of tacitly broke, but not ostensibly broke with it, is this, is that unlike trade, you know, the Republican Party was explicitly pro-free trade and then in its actions was pro-free trade. In foreign policy, it was, it was explicitly, you know, interventionist and uh, adventurous, if you want to be unkind, uh, and actively so. Immigration, though, the Republican Party was ostensibly, officially, in writing, we're for border security, we're for uh, tough limits, you know, we're for protecting American workers and this and that. But in what it actually did when it had power was none of that stuff. So it didn't deliver what it promised. And that was another gap where Trump identified both intellectually and politically. You know, obviously politically you can run on that. If you, if, you, if you have a party that keeps saying to its voters, if elected I will give you X, Y, and Z, and then they get elected and they never deliver X, Y, and Z, right? If you're a competitor, you're gonna see that as a, as a thing to exploit if you have any sense. Um, which he did. And again, in a 17-person field, he had the issue almost to himself until toward the end, obviously too late to get the nomination, Ted Cruz tried, started to pick it up. But he had also excellent foils in uh, Rubio, Jeb Bush, and Rand Paul, in, this, in the extent that Rand Paul was very much aligned with Trump on the foreign policy stuff, but very out of sync with Trump on the immigration issue where he's very much more libertarian uh, as minimal control. Jeb Bush and Rubio had pushed the so-called Gang of Eight uh, approaches, the comprehensive reforms uh, that were extremely unpopular with the base. So Trump could get well to the right of them on that question and well in sync with the base and exploited that division. Um, I think it's possible, I, you never know, counterfactual, but had somebody figured out earlier what Trump was doing and you know, one, of the, one of the things that often happens in American politics is somebody rises to extreme prominence very quickly uh, and then, uh, because they're either more uh, perspicacious or they're just more heedless, right? They're not like thinking through what may go wrong. And they turn out to flame out. I mean, two great examples are Eugene McCarthy in 68. Um, the, the thought, it's very similar to what the Republicans would later face in Iraq. The Democrats are completely tied to the Vietnam War. Nobody thinks they can run against it especially with the incumbent president who's escalated the war. And uh, it's all assumed that LBJ is going to run again out of nowhere. And, and nobody prominent in the party is going to take him on over the Vietnam question. Um, and out of nowhere, Senator Eugene McCarthy runs against, and, and also it's, it's considered to be bad form. You're not supposed to run against a president of your own party while he's the incumbent president. You just don't do that. So he does it, specifically over the Vietnam question. And he rockets to major fame, and he shows the fissures in the Democratic Party, and he shows how, you know, I mean, we, we knew there were fissures because there were student draft protests, there were lots of problems, but nobody knew how bad it was until McCarthy demonstrated it, and then it leaves an opening for somebody to come in and steal the issue, which Bobby Kennedy essentially does, right? Now, had he not been assassinated, he probably would have been the Democratic nominee in 1968. But notice, Bobby didn't run. He didn't take on LBJ until somebody else had taken him down a peg first. Similar thing happens with Howard Dean. This might have been able to happen with Trump if somebody had figured out in, say, January or February, okay, the guy has identified these issues, this is the way the party is going, 
I still can't tolerate him as the nominee, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna get right where he is on trade, war, immigration, or two of the three, or whatever, and bump him out of the race on his own terms. Maybe somebody could have done that. By the time anybody started to figure out that that was a possibility, it was April, and it was too late. It was over. He had, you know, he didn't formally have it, but he was gonna get it, right? Um, all right. Those are the three issues where conservatism failed, and, and I think they're still failing. I mean, I, I, I are, they've come a little bit of the right way, but not enough. I had to give a lecture, uh, not to my own class, but to another class of students at Hillsdale, where they take a course on just specifically on conservatism. And it's a lot of guest lecturers come in, and I was assigned. Uh, they said, "Well, we need to do a lecture for this class this semester." I said, "Okay, fine. Uh, what do you want me to talk about?" They said, "Well, you know, whatever." But we were thinking you could do the failures of conservatives. I don't, I don't, that's good. I like that. Yeah, I definitely. And I went and I did it, and I heard I got some feedback from some of the people. Like one of them was doing his internship at the Heritage Foundation, and went back. He's like, "Whoa, man, that guy. Whew, I don't know if I can walk in this building anymore." Um, I I scandalized them a little bit, I guess. But um, so Trump gets the nomination, and I don't. I, rather than seeing conservatism make, you know, people don't like to be criticized for the most part. Like when somebody says, hey, you've been wrong about something for 20 years, your usual gut reaction is not to say, thank you. I'm going to rethink that. Change my position and come in line with reason. You, your gut reaction is like, shut up, you know? I've, I've been in this hole for 20 years. I'm not climbing out of it now. It took me a long time to dig it. So conservatism <laughs> just decided <laughs> to keep digging and opposing Trump, you know, all through the summer. And, and I got eventually ticked off and frustrated, and so I wrote these in the Flight 93 election and made all of those cases and more, but also made the case that conservatism had been singularly ineffective at what it claims to do, right? So the name conservatism itself obviously implies that you're trying to conserve something. Well, what are you trying to conserve? Well, if it's the nation and its communities and so on, they hadn't done a very great job of that. I mean, if you lived in Silicon Valley or, the, or Manhattan, Things look pretty good. If you lived in, you know, flyover country or whatever we want to call it, it didn't look so good. You didn't think like conservatism had, and, and that's where obviously most of conservative voters came from. They didn't feel like their communities had been conserved. Um, I mean, I'll give you, just as an aside, I don't know how many of you guys watch cable TV. I don't recommend it, although I do go on it sometimes. But there was a, a really tremendous and incredibly brave segment the other night. On the Tucker Carlson show. Okay, what was it about? It was about the number one Republican donor in the country. A man I have actually know personally and met him a few times. I don't know that he ever will want to speak to me again, but we'll leave that aside. And Paul Singer runs a hedge fund in Manhattan. It was a town, I think it was called Sydney, Nebraska. Uh, the maiden employer at Sydney, Nebraska is Cabela's Sporting Goods, basically hunting fishing supplies. I've never been in one. I'm a pretty blue state person myself, lived on the coast my whole life. Um, I used to fish just because I grew up on the Pacific Coast, but I stopped a long time ago. Uh, never hunted. Uh, uh, not for deer, anyway. A couple times for birds. So I'm not really familiar with this world. But, okay, so Cabela's Sporting Goods. Um, for whatever reasons, which I'm sure they regret now, they allowed, you know, they went public and they were publicly traded. And some sharp analyst looks at it and goes, oh, wow, look at the P-E ratios on this thing. And the, uh, uh, so on and so forth. This is vastly undervalued. And if I can't get the value up uh, on the, by pushing it up on the market, well, what do you do if you're in finance to get the value up of an undervalued asset? 
you get somebody else to buy it, right? You get it acquired. You say you're, you're doing fine, not efficient enough, but if somebody else buys it and they lay off half the workforce because it's duplicative and redundant, all of a sudden, same business model, same basic volume of sales, profit margin, whoop, and stock price up, right? So they identify this. Now this company is totally profitable. It's making a billion dollars a year when they come in. Buy an 11% stake and then pressure the hell out of the uh, uh, management with the threat, when you own an 11% stake uh, and nobody else comes close, there's a lot, you've got a lot of leverage, right? You can, you, can, you can push people around and make them kind of do what you want. And they basically pressure management to sell the company to a larger competitor. The sale happens, 2,000, over, over a fairly short period, 2,000 jobs are eliminated and the town dies, just dies. Real estate values crash, all other economic activity, because this was the number one employer in the town. All other economic activity, activity stops, so on and so forth all led by the number one donor to the Republican Party over the last, I don't know how many cycles. Well, okay, what did he conserve, right? I mean, the numbers went up. This is what I talk about, you know, conservative economics is all about the numbers. If the numbers look good, everything is good. But if you live in the town, the numbers don't matter. The number that matters to you is 2,000 jobs eliminated, home prices cratering, average uh, uh, employment rate way up, average income down, life expectancy down, and so on. Those are the numbers that you care about. Right? Conservatism had failed to conserve things. So I said it doesn't, it doesn't even lived up to the promise of its name. Now I got criticized for a lot of things, not least just being like, how can you say anything nice about Trump? Trump is bad. Uh, Trump is a buffoon. Trump is a loudmouth. Trump tells lies. Uh, Trump tweets. You know, and some of his tweets are really reckless and dumb. You know, all these criticisms, some of which I concede. Um, the main point of it was though, like, you're supposed to be an educated intellectual, and educated intellectuals can't make arguments in favor of a buffoon like Trump. That's like the misuse of the wonderful gifts that your teachers gave you. Um, and then the second argument was, um, wow, this guy is Dr. Doom, right? I know you were assigned to the Flight 93 election. I don't know how many of you read it, but it's not a happy piece. Uh, it's not like you close it and think, Oh wow, tomorrow is another day, you know, I'm, 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 things are looking up, right? No, it's not really what I was going for. So the question was like, is this guy just all doom and gloom and the end of the world or is there any positive vision there? And, you know, I was moving on and doing other things, but eventually a publisher came to me and said, I want to republish the book. I want to republish that essay. I said, okay, uh, I also wrote a follow-up to it. You should republish that too. And then he says, but you have to add some new material. I thought, all right, well, maybe what I'll do is I'll say, what is the, there was a positive vision underlying this, right? I'm not entirely all doom and gloom. Maybe I'm mostly doom and gloom, but not entirely. So I'll try to lay it out. And that's the pre-statement in that book, uh, which was also assigned to you. Um, I, I try not to be too um, self-congratulatory. I, I genuinely do try not to be too self-congratulatory. But in this one instance, I will say, I think that essay is pretty good in the sense that if you want to get as clear and short and concise and uh, a compact version of natural right teaching, uh, it's hard. I mean, you could do better. You could do better in terms of the depth, detail, profundity, and so on. But or I'll, I will paraphrase um, a, a famous New Yorker writer named A.J. Liebling. He, you know, people would uh, super super successful guy in the first half of the 20th century, and somebody asked him. What's the secret to your success as a New Yorker writer? And he said, nobody who can write faster can write better, and nobody who can write better can write faster. Right? Now, I'm not claiming that mantle from A.J. Liebling. All I'm saying is, you can do better if it's longer, 
you know, but if you're looking for short and good, you can do better and you can do shorter. But, you know, the, at the intersection of short and good, this thing is not bad, all right? So <laughs> I start out, I remember it has nine sections. And I think I can tell, that, I think I remember what these are from memory. What, what, what's my cutoff? Hmm? Okay. Um, I start out with a section that a lot of my friends told me to cut and I left in because I'm stubborn called uh, Moral and Political Epistemology, which isn't very long, but I thought it was important. Because it addresses this question of how, you know, what, what is epistemology? It's the science of knowledge. So any philosophic question has to be paralleled with or undergirded by this notion of how do I know what I claim to know or think I know, right? An easy way to put an epistemological question is think about, you know, capital I intelligence in the national security world. Somebody comes to you, an analyst, and says, Iraq has WMD. Now, you could say, oh, okay, let's go start a war with them. Or you can also say, how do you know that? Why do you think that? Let me see the sources. Let me go to your, the basis for it, right? Similar kind of point I'm making. If I'm going to say to you, which I do in the book, here are these moral claims that rest in nature, right? Well, I can make a natural claim about chemistry, physics, math, and so on, and I can demonstrate it to you in a way that nobody in this room is going to dispute. Morality, natural right, justice, the things you learned in here are inherently intangible. I can't demonstrate them mathematically, and I can't do a controlled experiment that will show you the way I can, you know, burn some element and take something and transform it into two other. I can't do that. So I have to make it, it has to be done solely in speech. And having been done in speech, right, it, it will never be evident in the same way that these other things are. But there has to be an epistemological basis. I have to have a claim for knowing what I claim to know. And I try to lay that out in a short, short way. The second section goes into um, the claim of natural right itself. What is the content of the claim of natural right? Like why, not merely what is good and what is bad, but you know, why are certain things good and why are certain things bad? And how do we know these things? Well, but how do we know these things? I guess we covered in the first part, right? And this is very much consistent with the American founder's vision, right? Now the, the third section I called the American solution, which is to say these claims to moral truth or of natural right are permanent. They're always around. How given society or government tries to implement them will differ from place to place. The American founders tried to do it in a certain way based on the circumstances that they faced, the time that they faced it, but not everybody would do it the same way, right? Uh, and in fact, that's one of, I think, one of the errors of conservatism, at least certain parts of conservatism, was to say, well, wait, if these truths are permanent and universal, then there's only one right, right way to do government, and it has to be done this way everywhere, or that government is unjust and illegitimate, and I'm not being entirely fair to the sophisticated arguments of those who thought that forcing democracy on the Middle East at the point of a tank barrel would work, but that's kind of one of the thoughts that was behind their head, right? Well, this is universal. We'll go up there and they'll blow up their tyrannical government, which is bad. We'll replace it with this, which is good. Everything will work out great, right? Well, maybe, or, or in this case, obviously, no. Um, so then the American solution. How did the American founders try to implement these discoverable, remember, these principles of natural justice being natural and permanent are discoverable. We don't make them up. Anytime you hear somebody say something like, well, I have my rights from the government. No, you have your rights from God and nature. A properly administered government secures your rights, but it doesn't give them to you. All right, so how did the Americans try to do it? It's only one way to try to do it. It's not the only way to try to do it, but I try to explain that. And then a, a section on the scope and limits, which are just because something is permanent and true doesn't mean you can implement it anywhere. And, and it doesn't mean you can fully implement it 
um, even in the place where it's the most possible. So, here, you know, here's one of the things that I meant. Um, I'll give one example, which is from the book, right? American founding is in part based on social compact theory. I'm sure you all know what that is, right? If we in this lecture hall decided that we were going to found our own society of whatever, you know, we take a vote. Maybe it's oftentimes social compact theory holds that in the initial voting, you know, when you vote down the line on subsidiary issues, you divide the room in the majority rules. But nobody, the initial foundation of a social compact, uh, for it to work properly, nobody who doesn't want to be there should be there. So if we decide we are breaking away from the University of Notre Dame, forming our own republic of lecture hall, whatever, right? And we all vote, and like 90% of us want to do it, and the 10 hands are like, I don't want any part of this, right? You got to leave. We can't force you to be here, part of the original social con. It's got to be mutual on both sides, right? So that's one of the limits of the, of, to the universalism of the American solution. And I go through several others. Um, and then from there, the book turns to attacks on that and, it, and as a way of trying to lead into where we are now. So I know, I look at the syllabus. This material should be extremely familiar to you. I go through um, the initial attack, which is the pre-Civil War attack. Uh, which, uh, in a way, that it, it's the, it's the American polity, in, in a strange sense, is more anti-slavery at the time of the founding than it is in, by, the, by, say, 1830, right? By 1830, people are making arguments that nobody in the founding era would make for not the, uh, uh, you know, for, for the positive, you know, Calhoun uses the phrase, positive good. Like, no one's saying that. At, at the best you'll get, in the founding era is necessary evil uh, pre-existing thing that we don't know what to do with, but we're going to try to limit as much as possible. Lincoln eventually used the phrase place on the course of ultimate extinction, which I think uh, accurately summarizes the founders' teaching, although they didn't use that exact phrase. And actually, that's an interesting point. Lincoln only used it once in the House Divided speech. Um, and if any one phrase caused, no one phrase, of course, caused the Civil War. But if any one phrase caused the Civil War, that was it. Because it let down, it, it ripped off the mask. And it, from that point on, you know, Lincoln always said, and I think he meant this very sincerely, um, I have no constitutional authority to do anything about slavery in the territories where it exists. And I have no inclination to do so. He said that over and over. And he said, hmm? In the states, all right, of course, yeah, in the states where it exists. Um, said that in the first inaugural, he said it a million times. And then he, even, he believed it, and I believe he intended to act according to that principle. However, having said place in the course of ultimate extinction, everybody in the South knew if this guy wins, if this guy gets to implement the policies he wants, it, 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 this is going to die. And we, our, our, the survival of our system, way of life, and so on depends on him not winning, or if he wins, we have to go our own way. Um, so I summarize that, and because I summarize that because it's the first explicit attack from within the American political context on the principles of the American founding. These are American statesmen, senators, intellectuals, and so on, American citizens who are attacking the basis of the, of the, of the founding, the moral, metaphysical, political basis of the founding that had been a consensus in the decades before that, and now the consensus is split, right? And then the second attack is, and I know you read a lot about this, comes from the capital P progressive. Uh, of which uh, you know, Woodrow Wilson being the most prominent. But there were um, progressive Republicans. Teddy Roosevelt was a progressive Republican. Um, a Republican governor of California named Hiram Johnson, elected in 1910. So there were capital P progressives in both parties. 
both operating on essentially the same assumption, a kind of neo-Hegelian assumption that life had gotten too complicated to be governed by some old document from 1787, which was out of date, and, uh, that, de and that democratic processes in which important decisions are left to, let's face it, you know, relatively uneducated, unsophisticated voters like who don't know what they're doing, uh, we can't do that anymore. We gotta, we're bringing a greater, uh, safer expert. Well, that thought is very much still with us at our, in our time, I, probably more powerful than ever. So that's attack number two. And attack number three, in my telling, is a kind of um, union of new left campus agit prop politics of the 60s, which didn't have a fairly coherent intellectual basis as it started to emerge. You know, the free speech movement shutting down Sproul Plaza in 1964 in Berkeley and the Columbia taking over the uh, Columbia Student Center and Columbia University in 68, or the same thing happens in Cornell in 69. And all these things kind of happen all over campuses by students who are angry and discontented, but they, they don't have a core ideological basis. I mean, I guess if you wanted to try to find one, it would be if you've all heard of the, this would be a good thing to assign, maybe you assign the Port Huron Statement, which is the famous, oh, they read it? Well, it's historically relevant. Um, have you ever seen, I can't, I can't help it. Uh, the movie, I don't think it's as great as everybody says it is, and the people who love it really love it, but it has its moments. The Big Lebowski. He, uh, Jeff Lebowski takes credit for the Port Huron statement, and I think it's Julianne Moore character like, you did that? And he goes, what do you mean this part? And he goes, yeah, well, not the compromise second draft. Right? Oh, maybe that's what we should read, is the compromise second draft of the Port Huron. So, but what really gives the, the, new, the new new left and the left under which we still I think live with various modifications, is the political theory of a Harvard professor named John Rawls, whose giant 500-page magnum opus was published in 1971. Uh, and I sort of summarize how that came together and where it leads and how it informs the left today, in particular the, you know, the left that's attacking the, the principles of the founding. Um, so that's, in a way, the book, the pre-statement. There's also third chapter of it is called The Restatement, but that is something I wrote at the time, like a week after the Flight 93 election. There was like a deluge, you can believe it, of criticism. And uh, I just wrote an essay that said, these are the main objections that I heard to the article so far. I will take them in turn and respond to them. And I did that. And I, so that's the book, essentially. And uh, I guess I probably exceeded my 10 minutes. So we can. All right, we have lots of time uh, for questions. Um, uh, I'm going to ask you to repeat the question okay. uh, because the, your microphone uh, uh, will connect to the cameras, but the there's one. Questions? Anything? Patrick. Thank you very much for coming and speaking to the class. Um, I wanted to ask you about the third component of Trump's policy platform. Mm -hmm. You assert several times in the Flight 93 election in the restatement essay uh, two things. First, Democrats electorally, and in some cases irreversibly. And then second, that this is going to represent the death of some sort of American ideal. You call it the mark of a people that wants to die. So two things. Why do you think that it's impossible for the Republican Party to win the votes of recently naturalized citizens? And then why do you think that the claim of this new demographic majority to popular sovereignty, which you endorse, right. is somehow less legitimate? Okay. I don't say it's less legitimate. Oh, yeah. 
He's asking about my uh, comments about immigration, and in particular, um, the demographic change tends to, I'd say more than tends to, it tends to tip whatever polity, whether you want to say it at a city level, at a county level, at a state level, blue or democratic. So the first part of your answer is because it always has, right? We have a history of this. You could go back and look at the numbers. It all, there's no case, and in fact, I would, for a, a really well done and data-laden analysis, it was just published a day or two ago, it might have even been yesterday, a young guy named Pedro Gonzalez at a website called American Greatness, which is a successor to this blog that I used to write called the Journal of American Greatness, he lays it out, right? This is what has happened so far. So if it's, it, it would be one of the diagnoses of conservatisms that I, one of the things that I diagnose as wrong with conservatism is this kind of sunny hopefulness that says a trend that has been present for 50 years and has no exceptions anywhere, we're going to overcome any day now. So let's not do anything different, fellas. That just seemed to me to be foolish. Uh, now, I don't know whether or not it's impossible for the Republicans to overcome this deficit. We're going to find out. Because if anybody can, now, and it also depends on what you mean by overcome. If by overcome you mean Trump has to get 50% of the black, 51% or whatever of the black vote, he's not going to get 51% of the black vote. But if because his policies are popular with uh, certain black voters, especially to the extent that they're blue collar, that they, you know, Trump, Trump's major appeal, as I said this morning, is not to the educated upper class and the rich, right? He's not the party of the rich anymore. The Republican Party isn't anymore under Trump. The Republican Party is the party of the lower half of the socioeconomic spectrum, much more than the upper half. Right? If by that he can start to get you know, 20% of the black vote or something like that, the Democrats have a serious problem and the Republican Party will have been reformed on a new basis that is the explicitly blue collar party, right? which I think it's headed in that direction anyway. In my view, you know, faster, please. <laughs> Let's do it sooner rather than later. Um, now, on the broader philosophic question though, immigration, the way it's been practiced in this country the last 50, 55 years. When it's subject to a vote, people say they want less. They want less of it, they want stricter controls. They have a, but they have had a bipartisan consensus, a kind of quiet consensus. So Democrats and Republicans both know this is not a popular position, broadly speaking. Obviously, it's much more popular with the Democratic side than with the Republican side, but they both know it's not that popular. So they tend to either lie or obfuscate or, or misrepresent what they're doing. There's a consensus to not give the people what they vote for when they say they want greater restrictions. And there's a consensus to not do anything about enforcing immigration laws. And that's been in place for quite a while, or, or, or do very, very little. And that's been in place for quite a while. Now, I've talked about social compact theory a second ago, right? You can't have a social compact if it's possible for others to join the compact without the consent of the existing members. It's not a compact. That's a unilateral decision by somebody else. So when we have, I mean, that what illegal immigration, why is it illegal? I mean, it's illegal because it's, it's a law that says you're not supposed to be able to do it. But it's illegal precisely on the, on the original and only consistent understanding of social compact theory. We, the people of the United States of America, the citizens of the United States of America, have a sovereign right to decide who else gets to be a citizen. And we really haven't been able, as a practical matter, to exercise that sovereign right for something like a half century. Because whatever we vote for or vote against doesn't take place. And as a, so as a principled matter, this is a problem. As a practical matter, it's a problem for Republicans. I think, as a, I think also as a practical matter, just 
the only sensible immigration policy. Boy, this sounds so rad. People get crazy about this. And I, I, uh, I feel like it's such a moderate statement, but that just go, either shows that I'm crazy or you know, the left has moved so far left that standing in the dead center means you're a right winger now. But the lens through which I see immigration policy is what is good for the presently constituted citizenry of the United States, right? And right now, it seems to me we've had middle class wage stagnation or even declined by some metrics since 1970, right? So how is it good to have, I mean, we're always told, well, we need more workers for the economy, right? Well, does the law of supply and demand operate everywhere except in the labor market? I mean, that's kind of preposterous, right? I would actually rather see us tighten the labor market and raise wages at the bottom and in the middle, right? Chamber of Commerce Republicans don't like that. Labor's a cost. Costs are bad. Keep costs low. Private, proper, uh, sorry, profit margins high. Stock price up. Dow up. Productivity up. GDP up. Good, right? They don't care. And that's why a lot of uh, Republican voters feel that their uh, you know, Chamber of Commerce types and the economist types and the think tank types who are for lots of immigration on those grounds are completely out of touch with their concerns. And I think they're right to feel that way. And Trump feels it. But it also shows, look, he hasn't been nearly as effective as one, you know, it's three years in. I'd have liked to have seen a lot more progress from him on the immigration agenda that he laid out. And I haven't seen as much as I would like to see, in part because it's really hard to get elected as an outsider without a cadre of people committed to your agenda and get anything done in this government when all the permanent power centers, both inside and outside the government, are against you. So this is going to be a long battle. Um, you know, we, we'll see if he gets reelected. Uh, maybe he'll have more success in the second term pursuing this, but I think it, it needs to be done for the benefit of the existing citizenry. It needs to be done to tighten wages. Uh, and it needs to be done just also, I think, for um, societal cohesion. There's another very unpopular thought, but it's true. The, I, I, I did the math on this recently, and I think the number I came, the official number from Pew is that since 1965 to 2017, we took in like 65 million people. That's not counting the descendants of the people we took in during that period. No nation in the history of the world, and this includes like the fall of the Western Empire, when Visigoth tribes were pouring over the Danube into the Western Roman Empire, no nation has ever gone, undergone that swift a demographic change and augmentation in so short a time. It's never happened. This is inevitably going to cause all kinds of stress on the system, the political system, infrastructure, educational system, and so on. It's just going to happen, right? That's, people you know, don't respond to that kind of tidal wave change without going, being disoriented and saying, what's going on? I think it's reasonable for us to say, for the American people to say, we want to slow this down, right? Too much for too long. Uh, Once you stand up so everyone can hear you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, just repeat the question. Yeah. yeah. So my question builds off the last question. Um, there are some conservatives, such as Matthew Schmidt at uh, First Things, that argue that uh, immigrants, particularly from Latin America, actually agree much more with uh, conservative principles than the democratic vote would, be, uh, would let on. And that theoretically they should be, um, respond well to Trump's uh, rhetoric in support of blue collar workers. But that the reason that they don't vote for Republicans is because conservatives have failed to communicate this well to them, right? And instead employ rhetoric such as, um, such that 
derides their culture as cultures, alien cultures of poverty and crime. So my question is, how do you respond to this? Do you agree with it, or is it, or is this uh, criticism short-sighted? Well, I, I would say, the first thing I would say is you left out part of Schmitz's argument, and it's not one that he alone makes. There are a lot of other Catholic intellectuals and Catholic professors. I'm saying this at a Catholic university, but they, look, they say this openly, so no harm, I suppose, in me repeating their argument. They're like, yes, as long as we're getting Catholic immigrants, we want more immigrants because we want the country to be more Catholic, right? So that, to me, would be a self-interested argument in the sense that they're saying, we want to use immigration to tip the demographic balance, or a portion of it, in this case the religious portion of it, in a direction that we like, whether the rest of the country likes it or not, or wants it or not, or has even thought about it or voted on it. That seems kind of cynical to me. That's just doing what the Chamber of Commerce does to the labor market, what they want to do to the religious balance, right? So I'm skeptical, not really skeptical, I say. That's too nice a term. I'm opposed <laughs> on that, to that, on that basis. Um, the, uh, beyond that, the argument that he's making is, is a long, long pedigree. So I'm originally from California. Um, California effectively stopped enforcing any kind, well, it can't, right, because it's a federal matter. The state can't do much. But California began receiving a surge of illegal immigrants starting in, the, say, the late 60s, early 70s. It's forgotten, by the way. I don't know that any of you know this, but I will tell you. Um, the most prominent you know, Mexican-American political leader, probably in the history of the United States, but certainly in the history of California, anybody know his name? Cesar Chavez. What was he? He was a union boss, right? What, is the, uh, what are the uh, priority of a union boss? Keep your member wages high, right? Labor cartel. Tighten the market as much as possible so that you can squeeze concessions out of management. Cesar Chavez was therefore extremely concerned with and opposed to illegal immigration because it was bad for his worker members. This is now all scrubbed out of the record. We're not supposed to remember that about him at all, but that's what he stood for. So eventually, though, he dies, and, you know, and, and, and the uh, major economic interests in California, and particularly the farmers in the Central Valley, all of whom, by the way, are Republicans, um, ensure, essentially ensure that the state doesn't do anything about this. And the illegal immigration population swells over time in California. So we get to a point in 1994 where um, there's a proposition on the ballot, Proposition 187, a highly controversial thing. And Proposition 187 holds that the state will no longer pay, if it passes, welfare benefits, uh, public assistance, excluding emergency services. So if you're like in pain and you go to the ER and you can't prove you're a citizen, they're not going to kick you out and let you die on the street. But if you say, I'm applying for unemployment or something like that and you can't prove citizenship, you can't get it. So the thing passes by 60-40. That's obviously very popular in the state. Um, in the meantime, California's, uh, the Republican Party continues to do worse and worse in California. Uh, it voted for George W. H.W. in 88, Clinton in 92, and they never looked back. It's never gone Republican at the presidential level since. Wilson was reelected in 94. His Republican would-be successor is blown out in 98, and you get a nominal Republican governor in Arnold Schwarzenegger, partly because he's a movie star and partly because Gray Davis literally could not keep the lights on for a long period of time in California, and people recalled him and kicked him out. Now, the explanation for this was always given that um, Pete Wilson alienated Latino voters with Proposition 187, who otherwise would have voted Republican, and therefore. The problem is, I, but as I was kind of saying before, you look back at the voting patterns, there's no flipped switch, right? Voting patterns have kind of stayed the same, and they've never been 
yet, they may someday be, and if they are ever going to be, it will be because of Trump's success in making the Republican Party an explicitly blue-collar party, which it has never been in its history. Remember, the last time the Republicans did really well with blue-collar voters was in the Reagan era, when they overwhelmingly, a lot of them voted for Reagan in 80 and 84, but they didn't switch parties. They, they were known as the Reagan Democrats, and the Reagan uh, campaign people even encouraged the formation of chapters all over the country called Democrats for Reagan. In other words, the view is this is good for the president for the here and now, but you know, realignment, the future, whatever, worry about that later. Um, if this is ever going to change, it'll be because of Trump. My only point right now is there's no historical precedent for it. The, the, the Pete Wilson or the you've alienated uh, everyone argument doesn't fit the actual voting pattern facts. As numbers go up, you know, as demographic change happens, so far everywhere it's happened, and not just in California, but in all of these states, including recently in Virginia, right? States go blue. Uh, the number one, as the Pedro Gonzalez article that I pointed out, and I hope everybody goes to read, I think, again, it's a day or two old at most. The number one predictor of, it's not the only one, but the number one, high, you know, if you know your statistics, most highly correlative predictor of how a voting district votes uh, is percentage of foreign-born or recent entry. And that's just the way it's been. So if we want to change that, and I would like to, I'd love nothing more than to change that. If we want to change that, let's try to change it, but let's not kid ourselves as to what's actually been happening. Stand up to the camera. Yes. Um, yeah, on a kind of related note uh, to Jorge's question, how, how does recent appeals made by, I think, in particular, Senator Marco Rubio toward Catholic social teaching as, as a possible way forward for an economic program, program for conservatives in general. Do you think that has any viability? Um, because it, it seems to align with a great deal, at least the critique of yeah. what the Republican Party has been for. Um, and yet, you know, the argument that probably a lot of conservatives make is that, well, it's too esoteric, right? Right. Um, so the question is, what do I think of the Marco Rubio argument, which is not solely his, but he's the one championing it right now, that Catholic social teaching points the way toward a better economic policy or more equitable economic policy. So I'm mixed. Any, I definitely want to see conservatism as an intellectual force and the Republican Party as a political force move toward the middle economically, even if that means you know, market distorting things like protectionism, um, you know, whether you know, certain subsidies, uh, but that help the middle class and help the working class, that a pure, you know, Austrian school economist would say, this contradicts Hayek and is therefore inefficient and bad, like, I don't care. I'm, I'm totally willing to violate those tenets. I don't think you necessarily need to do it on the basis of a Catholic or any kind of religious understanding. So I would, I guess, I guess the way I would answer that is, if that's the personal reason why Marco Rubio is now moving in this direction, after having been, for most of his career, a much you know, totally orthodox, free market, libertarian, economist, free trade guy, then great. I'm glad Marco Rubio is coming in the right direction. If we're going to, but I would caution anyone against using that and trying to make that the explicit foundation of the reason for public policy, right? So one of the things I try to point out in my book is you can be absolutely as religious as you want to be or as agnostic as you want to be. Um, and still believe in natural rights. Natural right in no way contradicts anybody's religious, I mean, maybe if you're like Anton LaVey, Church of Satan, yes, that contradicts your religious faith. But, you know, of the faiths that I'm more or less familiar with and respect, no, it doesn't. So, perfectly, I think I can find common ground with Marco Rubio on policy, but just say, look, 
I'm coming at it, or somebody else could come at this and want the exact same ends for totally different reasons. And if we try to say to the American electorate, the reason to do this is because of Catholic social teaching, you're gonna, it's a, it's a, um, that's counterproductive, right? Counterproductive. I don't think you're gonna sell it widely on that basis, even if it's consistent with that basis. So that's, if that's where he's coming from, great. But he's gonna have to find a way to work with a lot of people who are coming to the same kind of conclusion uh, for different reasons. And the real struggle right now, though, first and foremost, is doesn't have anything to do with that integralism stuff. It's defeating the conservative free market absolutists in the realm of ideas and the donor chamber of commerce class who's gonna oppose this for pocketbook reasons for themselves. That's the force that's gotta be contended with first. We can sort the rest out later on the basis of which I suggested, at least that would be my argument. Yeah, um, so you mentioned um, Rawls as being part of the uh, ideological foundation of the modern left. Um, do you think that there's space for Professor John Tomasi at Brown's free market fairness for a type of Rawlsian Hayek fusionism that would allow more social justice and kind of an influence of Catholic social teaching within the Republican Party, but from a more intellectual basis, especially as younger Republicans tend to have more left-leaning social attitudes while maintaining small government values and fiscal conservatism? I don't know Tomasi, so I don't know how I would necessarily answer that. I, uh, to take the last part of your question, it seems to me that uh, conservatism is going the other way. It used, to be a, it used to be by far the most common thing you would hear you know, when I was growing up. Um, if you were like in my particular circle, we were just conservative across the board. So we'd be like, yes, I'm socially conservative, I'm economically conservative, I'm foreign policy conservative. But we were outliers, right? We were intellectuals or whatever, grad students. But if you, you'd, you know, the average successful educated person that you would meet uh, in a blue city anywhere would say, I'm socially conservative and, or so socially liberal and fiscally conservative, right? That was the thing. Um, the Republican Party now is going in the totally, it's in the, in the opposite direction. All the energy, the Republican Party and among the youth is they want more social conservatism and more economic, if not liberalism, moderation. They want less free trade, free market orthodoxy. They're much more willing to see the state even eager in some cases to see the state intervene uh, in the economy if they think it's doing so in their interests. Even if they think those actions violate free market orthodoxy, they don't care. Um, but they're, now this isn't, I'm not saying this is the, all of the youth think this way. Obviously there's a huge portion of the youth that are gonna go out and vote Democrat, in, either in the primaries or in the general, who are totally socially liberal and uh, find any kind of social conservatism anathema. But my own experience among people younger than me, 10, 20, 25 years younger than me, is they have flipped that. And they're now more socially conservative than their peers would have been in 1995, and way more economically liberal than their peers would have been in 1995. So if, you know, if the party is gonna appeal to them, they're gonna stick with it and vote for it, the party's gonna have to go in that direction too. Uh, and which shouldn't be hard, right? Because the Republican Party has never been a socially liberal party. Formally, it's always been a socially conservative party. Um, it has socially liberal voters and donors who make up a minority, but to the extent that they're elite people and give money, you know, giving money is kind of influential thing, they have outside influence to their numbers. But they've never been able to take over the party. And I think their chances of doing that now are probably lesser than it's ever been. So the real fight, again, is on the economic side. Because, you know, however, you know, whatever the socially liberal. I mean, this, this was actually a, a, a big thing in the 90s where you, you heard this argument a lot. Um, 
the Republicans could be a national majority party if only they would drop their opposition to abortion. Right? This is the thing you got to. In fact, one of a person that I, I worked for, Governor Pete Wilson of California, one of the last nationally prominent pro-choice Republicans. I mean, he became governor of the nation's largest state. He tried to run for president in 1996. Didn't get anywhere. Uh, but in part, he didn't get anywhere because he was out of step with the Republican primary electorate. So from this kind of, you had this little movement of boomlet of people within the Republican Party. Christy Whitman was one. She was the governor of New Jersey and then went on to be Bush's EPA director. There were a handful of nationally prominent Republicans, some governors, some senators, handful, minority, but who, who were trying to dr pull the party in that direction. They failed. I think they failed for the foreseeable future. It's not going in that direction maybe in another 30, 40 years if it's still alive, but I don't see that as any kind of viable future for it right now. Less than five minutes, we're going to get as many questions as, as we can. Um, hi. Uh, a primary conservative argument against progressivism is that a welfare state like paternalistically and artificially mm -hmm. attempts to create equity rather than uh, equality of opportunity. How is progressive tariffs any different in that respect? Like, isn't a progressive tariff, or isn't a protectionist tariff also shielding paternalistically, like Sydney, Nebraska? Yeah. Yes. Yes, it is. But that's okay. <laughs> right? I, I mean, a conservative, I think, small c conservative would say, look, we're not in this to, uh, first of all, they would re reject the progressive notion that um, we can equalize everything. So the question is, how much equity do you want? Right? Uh, conservatives became, in their rigidity on economics, became not only completely indifferent to the question of income and wealth inequality, but almost scoffingly contemptuous of it. Like, you've heard the phrase Gini coefficient. No matter how big it gets, hey, we don't care. If, if America you know, gets to the point where 10 multi-billionaires, or maybe we even have some trillionaires, who knows, own everything, and everybody else is eating bugs uh, and living in a tiny house if they're lucky, that's cool as long as the market worked it out you know, and we didn't intervene. Like, that's, I'm, I'm being extreme for a reason. It's, you could call that a straw man or a reductio ad absurdum, but I don't see how their principles wouldn't require them to endorse that view. Right now, we've got massive wealth concentrations in the finance and tech sector that is accelerating and ongoing. Both of those sectors are hostile to conservatism in the Republican Party, and most conservative intellectuals are just like, yes, they're winners, great, more, more, more. Um, seems kind of dumb to me. So the question is not, can you create perfect equity or let inequality get totally out of control? It's at what point does inequality get so bad that you need to rein it in a bit? And it's sometimes government can be so stifling in its pursuit of equality that you need to relax it. This is one of the arguments I made during the Trump campaign fairly explicitly. Like when you have a top marginal rate of 70% and you really are squashing entrepreneurialism and economic dynamism, you got to do something about that. Okay, that was true in 1980. Um, but the Republican lesson they took from it is we must always cut taxes, right? To the point where you got people in Manhattan making $200 million a year paying an effective tax rate of 10%, if that. Whereas some secretary across the street over here is paying an effective tax rate in the low 30s or even mid 30s. That's insane. That's not good for anybody, right? So, and beyond that, because we are a social compact and we are a community, I think it's perfectly permissible for us to do things that are inefficient, that thumb the economy in certain ways to protect places like Sydney, Nebraska, or South Bend, or wherever, because they're ours. Simple as that, because they're ours, right? We don't have an obligation 
to make our, all of our communities poorer and worse or whatever in certain ways be just because the, economic, the numbers say that it would be more efficient that way. That, it seems to me, to be bad policy. And one very quick thought, right? This just shows you again how totally moderate I am. Right? In Aristotle's politics, he says, in the well-governed polis, the richest citizen shall have no more than five times the wealth of the poorest citizen. Five X, that's it. He doesn't say how he's going to enforce that, but you can guess how he would enforce that if he could run things. I'm not calling for 5x as the maximum or anything close to it. I'm not even saying we should state a number and a hard cap. I am saying we should stop pursuing policies that make sure the gap just keeps going like this into the sleep forever. That doesn't seem to be working out. I'm, I'm sorry. We're just about out of time. I don't want to keep you long. Um, on next week, obviously, is our last week of class. We, uh, uh, Professor Anton talked about the new left. We do the new left next week. Okay. Uh, please join me and thank you, Professor Anton.